welcome to this special episode of Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Between February 11th and April 1st, 2022, the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute held our 2022 Congressional Briefing Series entitled Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. This eight-part series was co-convened and co-moderated by MEI's Khaled El-Gindi and myself, Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. It featured an array of Palestinian and Israeli voices weighing in on some of the most pressing and timely Israel-Palestine related issues that Congress faces today. The series was held virtually and participation was open exclusively to members of Congress and congressional staff. However, given the importance both of the issues dealt with in this series and of the expertise featured on each panel, we decided to make the full series available to the public. You can listen to the podcast here and you can find the webinars on our website www.fmep.org. Now sit back and enjoy the podcast. So welcome everyone. Good morning or good afternoon, depending where you are. And welcome to the second, this is not the second, this is the fourth session of our eight-part congressional uh, briefing series, Israel-Palestine Hot Topics in Congress. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm pleased to be co-hosting this series with Khaled El-Gindi, director of the Middle East Institute's program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. Thanks, Laura. Uh, today's session is uh, after 70 plus years, why are Palestinian refugees still an issue? To help us better understand this uh, very important topic, uh, we've lined up another really uh, outstanding panel of experts. Uh, I'll list them here in alphabetical order. Uh, first, we have Francesca Albanese, uh, who is uh, an affiliate researcher uh, at Georgetown University and the American University of Beirut. Um, next, we have uh, Omar al Ghubari, who is a political educator and group facilitator with the uh, Israeli organization uh, known as Zohrot. And uh, uh, third, we have Hani al Madhun, uh, who is uh, the director of philanthropy with Unerwa USA here uh, uh, on the East Coast. Um, you can read their, the, our panelists' full bios on uh, the websites for both FMAP and MEI for this event, uh, for this series. Uh, and at the same time, our colleagues will be putting up links in the chat box. Keep an eye on that chat box uh, throughout our discussion, uh, as we'll be inserting links to various resources over the course uh, of the conversation. Um, and if you miss anything in the chat box, don't worry, all of the materials will be posted on the webpage uh, after the event. So before we get started, the format for this session, like the sessions in, that have previously happened in this series, is a moderated Q&A that will be led by Khaled and me. We have some of our own questions to get things started. As always, we welcome um, questions uh, for the audience. Uh, if you're going to submit questions, do that at any time during the panel and do that via the Q&A box. Um, and then the panelists can also keep an eye on that Q&A box. And if they see things they want to take on, feel free to weave it into your answers there. Finally, I want to note that this webinar is being recorded. The video will be shared um, after the fact. Um, also, if you have technical problems about anything that's happening, uh, put those in the chat box. One of our staff behind the scenes, our colleagues will be watching that. So with that, let's begin. Great. Um, so by way of uh, framing, uh, in 1949, the United Nations General Assembly established the, the United Nations Relief Works Agency, also known as UNRWA, 
to address the needs of Palestinian refugees who fled or were expelled from their uh, homeland in the course of Israel's creation in 1948. According to UNRWA, uh, a Palestinian refugee was defined as any person whose, quote, normal place of residence was Palestine during the period from uh, 1 June 1946 to 15 May 1948, and who lost both home and means of livelihood as a result of the 1948 conflict. At that time, UNRWA was responding to the needs uh, of around 750,000 Palestine refugees, approximately two thirds uh, of what had been the Arab population of, of Palestine. Uh, fast forward to today, where UNRWA <laughs> estimates around 5 million Palest uh, Palestine refugees are eligible for its services of which nearly one third or around 1.5 million uh, people live in refugee camps in uh, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, uh, including uh, at least one, one refugee camp in, in East Jerusalem. So Hani, I'd like to start with you um, as, uh, as someone who works for the, an association that is obviously closely affiliated with UNRWA. If you could give us some background on uh, who are the Palestinian refugees, where did they come from, how did they become refugees, uh, where are they now, what is life like for, for Palestinian refugees this, you know, almost more than seven decades later, um, and if you could uh, give us a sense of what refugeehood uh, and the, uh, the, the, the uh, dispossession of Palestinians means to Palestinians in terms of their own uh, national consciousness. Great, thank you, Khalid. Just wanna distinguish, you know, there's UNRWA, the, U the UN agency that works with the Palestinian refugees, you know, we're UNRWA USA, we're an affiliate of UNRWA, so we're not the UN agency, just wanna establish that. We love them, everything we do is to promote their work and lift up the refugees, but you know, we're independent American charity with an independent board that does everything to support UNRWA's work and its mission in Palestine. And Lebanon, Syria, and, and Jordan, including you know, East Jerusalem and the West Bank. So, and Gaza. So, you know, as you said, Khalid, you have it right, that refugee is a person whose normal place of residence was Palestine during the period of June 1st, 1946 to May 15, 1948. And at the time, you know, those folks lost their means of livelihood as a result of the conflict. And that includes people like my grandfather, who come from a town called now Ashkelon, uh, the Arabic name is Askelon, and that's a 15-minute uh, drive, I believe, to Gaza, and at the time, they had feared for their lives, and they just, uh, uh, you know, they were told that there is some uh, militias coming for them, and, you know, my grandma left the day before him and left him with the kids, so he had no choice but to run for Gaza. In fact, when he, before he went to Gaza, he left a, he left a chicken in the house cooking because he thought by the afternoon, he's gonna be back. And, you know, we sadly, we buried him two years ago and he's never went back, but he lived a uh, full life. And, you know, so that, those are the type of stories that uh, we work with. And, you know, at the time, as you said, Khalid, there was 750 Palestine refugees, but as of December, 2020, in fact, the number is 5.7 million Palestine refugees registered with UNRWA. And frankly, the second largest group of refugees is made up of those Palestinians who were displaced 
for the first time from their homes and communities in 1967, as well as their descendants. There was a second wave of refugees that led to the creation of 10 new refugee camps that the UNRWA now oversees. And obviously, the systematic, systematic displacement of the Palestinians uh, predates the UN partition plan. So it's not, it was happening prior to May 15, 1948, which is sort of like the formal date for the beginning of the hostilities. And most of those folks came from towns in historic Palestine. And, you know, they, they were never allowed to return to their homes. And they just, some of them went to different places. So it depends on your what town you were from, from historic Palestine, you went to the next nearest spot. Some people went to Lebanon, some people went to Syria, some people went to Jordan, and obviously, you know, some state a little bit within Gaza, the West Bank and Jerusalem. And there is differences, right? So if you went to Lebanon, you're, you're, you're always unlucky, but if you went to Lebanon, things are really tougher in the sense that you're not getting much support. I'll talk more about that later. If you went to Syria, maybe until the civil uh, war started, then, uh, you know, things shift. And obviously the process is still ongoing. You know, there's still Palestinian refugees are, are made every day. We see in Sheikh Jarrah where people, uh, you know, there's forced displacement, there's home demolition in the West Bank every morning. And it's obviously at a slower rate, but we're not out of the water yet. And obviously what the owner was mandate is to protect the Palestinian refugees. So that's understanding is, you know, we, we don't have, you know, we try to support them as they face eviction. In fact, the families that are facing eviction again from Sheikh Jarrah, their homes were provided by UNRWA and the Jordanian government. So there's a lot of history there. And right now we estimate that one third of the registered Palestinian refugees live in 58 registered Palestinian refugee camps. So there's 58 uh, registered refugee camps, but there's also communities and gatherings. There are people who live outside the camp. For example, our family was originally refugees in Jabalia camp, which is Gaza's largest refugee camp, because my dad got a job uh, in the Emirates. He was able to buy a home outside the camp, which we live 15 minutes outside. And, you know, while, you know, he got a job with uh, UNRWA, which is, you know, as a teacher, so those are the kind of stories that uh, we try to uplift. And he was only able to come back to Gaza because he got the job from UNRWA that pays a little bit, slightly better than other jobs, but they also expect more. So that's why you find that UNRWA students tend to be better doctors, you know, and UNRWA continues to do, to deliver things within its mandate. And, you know, I'll just uh, stop there and kick it back to you, Khaled. Thanks, Hani. Um, Omar, I want to move on to you um, and really picking up where Hani left off. You are obviously inside uh, this is inside Israel, inside the Green Line. Can you introduce yourself and your organization, Zohrot, which I'm guessing a lot of people have never heard of? Um, what is this group? Who is involved in it? Who, who makes it up? Who is your audience? And what is it trying to achieve um, as an Israeli NGO? Sure. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for this opportunity and this invitation, Laura and Hani. Um, well, uh, I'm from inside, as you said, um, this is the, the, the term that we use to define the Palestinians that remained inside the state of Israel. So we see we, they, they are Palestinians from inside. So the, 
um, I can define myself that I'm not a refugee by chance because uh, the attempt to occupy my uh, original village uh, was a part of the, um, uh, the, the Israeli army attempts in July 1948. The village was attacked and all families are uh, forced to leave the village and they may, stayed for three or four weeks in the mountains around the village. They didn't go uh, far from their uh, lands and their uh, houses. And uh, it seems that the Israeli army withdrew from the village and left everything after some destruction and taking uh, some of the um, uh, cattle, the cows and the sheep and uh, vandalizing the stuff of the houses. Uh, they just left and the families decided three weeks after this attack uh, to return to the houses. And um, uh, they, 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 they returned and they didn't see Israelis till uh, May 1949, which is very important uh, uh, point because my village and the whole region that we uh, call it the Triangle and Muthalaf in Arabic, at the area of Wadi Ara, Umm al-Fahim, Tira, if you are familiar with these Palestinian towns in Israel, were not occupied in 1948, but actually they were annexed to Israel according to Rodos Agreement in 1949. So Israel was not uh, um, uh, sufficient with what already captured in Rodos Agreement, asked Jordan to take more land from the land that Israel did not occupy till that time, and my village was one of them. So uh, in this uh, um, definition of the Nakba that the Palestinian people was cut and smashed to different groups, actually inside Israel, the group that is defined as 48 group of Palestinians inside Israel also were some of them taken or captured in 1948, and my region was taken in 1949. And since then, they became citizens of the state of Israel. But in very bizarre way, they lived as citizens in a military regime for 18 years, from 1948 till 1966. Uh, so I'm, I'm Palestinian. I have the citizenship of uh, the state of Israel. So I have this uh, um, uh, privileged situation that I can see the towns and the villages that Hani's uh, family and other Palestinian refugees families um, are forced to leave in 1948, 49, and even before then and after then. Uh, maybe we have the opportunity to talk about the expulsion times and the expulsion paths and the expulsion, expulsion practices uh, at, that, uh, at that time. Um, uh, 20 years ago, uh, Israeli Jewish um, activists um, that used to work in uh, so-called peace workshops or peace framework uh, or NGOs realized that all these projects are dealing with the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza or the war that occurred between Israel and the Palestinian people and the, the Arab countries in 1967 and they never deal with the sources of what's so-called conflict between Palestinians and Israelis 
they don't talk about the 1948 events and they don't talk about the Palestinian Nakba. So they decided to uh, create a, a new organization that called Zohrot in Hebrew, which means remembering in order to, uh, uh, to deal and to explore and to expose the, um, the Palestinian Nakba. And to do that in Hebrew, in order to bring the, the, the Nakba issue to the Israeli Jewish society. So the goal of Zohrot is to challenge the Israeli perceptions regarding what happened in 1948, to call and to promote acknowledgement of the responsibility of the Israeli side on the Palestinian Nakba, and to acknowledge the right to, to return of the Palestinian refugees uh, if we seek peace and normal situation in this landscape, we, uh, we call the Israeli side to acknowledge the right to return and to start process of implementation of the return of the Palestinian refugees as a basis of any solution or any uh, future that we can build in, in, in this area. Thank you, Omar. Um, Francesca, I'd like to come to you um, as, as really one of the foremost legal scholars uh, on the question of refugees and in particular uh, on, on Palestinian refugees. Talk to us a little bit about the, the legal environment that, uh, that we're dealing with here on the refugee issue. Uh, I think most people somewhat familiar with the issue uh, know that uh, the issue was addressed in UN General Assembly Resolution 194 adopted in late 1948, which stated uh, refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date. And that compensation should be paid for the property of those choosing not to return and for the loss of or damage to property, which under principles of international law or equity should be made good by the governments or authorities responsible. So as uh, an international legal scholar. Um, what is the status of, of Palestinian refugees and their legal claims uh, to, a, to a right to return uh, under Resolution 194 or other instruments of international law? And what are Israel's legal obligations uh, with regard to the refugees and their properties? Uh, thank you, Khaled, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, I'm very happy to take the question of status as the situation of Palestinian refugees is too often discussed through the lens of politics, which undermines both day-by-day -day protection and their quest for justice. But if you allow me to make a precision in reaction to what Hani said before, because I think it's very important, um, protect, protect, protected under international law as Palestinian refugees, uh, are those who had British mandate citizenship or were entitled to, uh, to have British mandate citizenship uh, until 1948 and were displaced, as Hani said, in 1948 and in 1967 from the territory that corresponded uh, once to British, uh, British mandate Palestine and uh, were not allowed to return, were uh, denationalized en masse as of 1952. Their question is still to be settled in line with relevant UN resolutions. So 
uh, all, because one of the critical issues that I often hear is that, yeah, but there is no definition who is a Palestinian refugee. And the UNRWA definition is often taken as a point of reference and it's broader and narrower of who Palestinian refugees are. So those who were displaced in 1948 and in 1967, and whose situation is still to be resolved in line with international law as requested by important UN resolutions. This is sorry for the precision, but again, just in case there is someone in the audience who's not familiar with it. Now, when it comes to question of status, from a legal perspective, Status means rights, benefits, obligations that a person has from a given source of law, right? Now, from an international perspective, Palestinians are refugees uh, originating from a complex situation of uh, displacement, dispossession, continuous denial of the right of self-determination protracted over 70 years but also largely stateless persons. And this is something that is often misunderstood uh, and not only, I mean, not only among non-lawyers, non also caught up in armed conflict. So when we talk about the, which rights Palestinian refugees are, we have to look at the multitude and the multiplicity of uh, um, uh, bodies, regimes afforded by international law, like refugee law, they are protected under refugee law, the law of stateless person, human rights law, international humanitarian law. What happens in fact is that because of the nature of their dispersal, they fall through the cracks, they get unprotected. And this is the reality for many of them. And not only, I would like to add again to what Hani said, those in UNRWA's areas of operation, but as I will have the chance also to say later, um, those who have uh, dispersed through, throughout the Arab region and, and beyond. Now, going to the right of return, the right of return is a case in point. And especially in the US, as I, I've, I've experienced this I was, as a, when I was there, but also as a scholar, um, I see that the right of return is often disputed as a legal right because its origin, commonly attributed to Resolution 194, are disputed as, well, on the ground of, well, but the General Assembly resolution cannot really establish what a right. Well, besides the merit of it, which is debatable, Resolution 194 did not create the right of return, reaffirmed the rights that existed in international law back in 1940. Uh, 48. And back then, the right of return could be derived from a combined application of legal norms. First of all, the prohibition of deportation and expulsion, um, uh, as well the prohibition of seizure and destruction of property under the laws of custom of war, but, but also uh, the connected right to have one's own property and possessions reinstated as a consequence of the obligation to make reparation for an internationally wrongful act. So these are the obligations that already existed in 1948. And the drafters of resolution 194 knew that. And this is why they formulated paragraph 11 concerning the right to return. But it, actually it's not just the right of return. It's a right to durable solution for Palestinian refugees. The fact that the Arab states got involved in the conflict uh, in response to the mass exodus of the Arab population by no means exonerates Israel from the responsibility stemming from that. Also because, uh, again, as I said, there was a mass denationalization of the refugees who should have been allowed to 
um, to elicit, if they wanted, citizenship uh, in, in Israel. Now, the passing of time or the acquisition of citizenship by some Palestinian refugees, including descendants, doesn't relinquish the rights Palestinians have. Actually, they become stronger. So this is also to clarify that if Palestinians in Jordan um, have acquired Jordanian citizenship, they might not be refugees under the 1951 convention as individual refugees, but they're still entitled to the residual protection from the displacement they were, they were victims of. And, um, and uh, of course, what does it mean? So the right of return is alive, is alive and needs to be operationalized. Of course, the past cannot be undone, and the extent to which the right of return is to be honored, as well as the modalities, are to be determined. But the point is that excluding it as a matter of principle is a political choice and a wrong one, in my view. It's not a legal, no, it's not a legal matter. Thank you, Francesca. That was actually extremely clarifying. Um, and I know that our colleagues have put up into the chat links to a lot of the documents you referenced, um, which is really helpful as well. Um, Amad, I want to come back to you and I want to talk about what was left behind and return. I know Zohrot, part of the activities of Zohrot is reminding people of what was left on the ground, not letting villages be erased, not letting memory be erased. Can you talk about that and what Israeli policy since 48 has been to um, towards Palestinian properties left behind, Palestinian places of memory? And can you also talk about the policy of Israel vis-a-vis -vis right of return, right? Why it has been obviously denied um, wholesale, the very concept has been denied. Um, and, and it specifically has been denied in contrast to what we're seeing with the Jewish law of return, right? So I, as a Jewish person, can get my citizenship tomorrow if I want it, because I'm Jewish. But more than that, the Jewish and Israeli, what is effectively a right of return being implemented that is a mirror image of the Palestinian demand, which is returning to properties, as Hani said in Sheikh Sharah, that was a, a Jewish property before 48. So the Israeli law lets a Jewish family claim it and do what they want, or in Hebron, for example. So can you talk about those two pieces of it, the physical remnants of what's behind and what the policy has been, and also the whole concept of return and how it's seen on the Israeli side? Well, many issues yet. <laughs> um, well, um, if we start in, in, in 1948, at least in 1948, and we, we, we uh, witness that um, more than 750,000 Palestinians forced to leave their homes and towns and cities and villages, and they um, actually leaving behind them um, not less than 600 uh, localities with dozens of thousands of homes and buildings and the whole private property inside the homes, uh, the, the public uh, institutions, the schools, the books, um, their heritage. I'm talking about the material uh, property and also the spiritual ones that um, uh, the, uh, the Palestinian people lost in, in 1948. And um, um, everything was uh, actually captured and taken by the Israeli authorities, the Israeli government. Immediately, even during what so-called the war between Israel and the Arab countries, during the expulsion of the Palestinian uh, uh, people, the Israeli government 
the, the Israeli government uh, um, created a committee in June 1948 that's known as the Transfer Committee. Ask the committee to give recommendations to the Israeli government how to prevent the return of the Palestinian refugees. And remember, we are still in June 1948 and the expulsion is still ongoing, which means if the Israeli argument that they didn't have any plan for transferring the Palestinians, let's say, okay, till June, the, the, uh, the soldiers didn't know that these refugees will not come back. But since June, the middle of June, of course, the, there is an Israeli decision, decision that will prevent the Palestinian refugees to come back because the Israeli government adopted the recommendations of this committee. One of them is to block the way of the Palestinians that try to step back to their homes and to, to, to destroy part of their uh, 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 villages and towns or to use them by settling Jewish families in the houses of the um, uh, Palestinian uh, families, uh, um, preventing them to use their lands because some of the refugees remained for a while close to their uh, lands and they squatted and they came back uh, uh, for short time in order to cultivate the land or to, uh, um, um, to harvest their, their, their fruits. Um, and so this committee recommended to the government to stop these actions in order to uh, send the clear message to the Palestinian refugees that they don't have anything to return to, not homes, not lands, not uh, um, anything else. In 1950, this was the first formal step that the Israeli government uh, hold, holding in 1948 by this committee. In 1950, the Israeli uh, parliament uh, uh, legislated uh, a law that uh, uh, known as a law for the absentee's property. Absentee means that any person actually Palestinian, who used to live for a while or long time in a country that defined as enemy or in other parts of Palestine that were not occupied yet by Israel and they fight it against uh, the Zionist side or the Israeli uh, side. All these people who lived uh, um, uh, in their towns uh, um, recognized as absentees and they and their property will be confiscated by the Israeli authorities. The Israelis um, uh, created uh, a custodianship uh, council that actually managed the property of the Palestinian uh, refugees. In fact, they gave the authority and the power for the custodian to use or to sell or to rent the Palestinian lands and the Palestinian uh, uh, property. Following this law, they are uh, updating uh, during the coming uh, years in order to prevent uh, the Palestinian uh, property to be uh, uh, returned to their owners, uh, the Palestinian owners. Actually, the fact that uh, um, this law giving the right to the uh, Israeli government to sell the land means that this land actually uh, lost 
in the eyes of the Palestinian or the Palestinian refugees because they cannot claim the land even from the Israeli uh, uh, state, from the, 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 the state of Israel. Um, according to this, by the way, in 1950, the Israeli government sold 1 million dunams of land to the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, one of the most racist uh, uh, bodies uh, that was established in 1901 in order to, uh, um, uh, to save or to, to release the land of the Jewish people. And uh, today they, they own and administrate 13% of the land of the state of Israel as a land for the Jewish people uh, purposes and the Jewish people benefit. Even myself as a citizen of the state of Israel, I'm not allowed according to the laws of the GNF to get any benefit from this, uh, 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 from this land. So uh, all the time, the, the, uh, uh, the different Israeli governments, regardless that they are from left or right uh, uh, side, uh, rejected the right to return of the Palestinian uh, refugees. At the same time, as the state was founded for Jews everywhere, uh, they opened the door for any person is defined as a Jew to come and to uh, immigrate and to get citizenship of the state and to get property from the properties of the Palestinian refugees. Um, uh, according to the uh, Jewish uh, return law. After the occupation of 1967 of the West Bank and Jerusalem and Gaza, some properties, as you mentioned, in East Jerusalem were originally in 1948 for Jewish families that were uh, um, also because of the war and the, the forced to leave their property. Uh, in 1967, they, uh, they actually had the access to this property, and during the years, they demanded to get back their property. Israel, Israeli law allow these families to take back their property. And some of them, uh, actually what's going now for, according to this uh, property, uh, mainly in Sheikh Jarrah, is not by the original Jewish families that own the houses and the property. There is a, a, a settlers a, a NGOs or settlers committees, they claim the property of the Jewish families because they are Jewish. And they uh, actually, uh, they say that they got the, the uh, signature of the families. I'm, I'm not sure that they did that. At least I, want, I know one case of Ben Meir family that they said clearly I didn't sign for anyone to claim my house. I still have my house in East Jerusalem and I don't want it. I, I know what is the situation, the political situation of today. But the Israeli law and the Israeli political approach is to allow Palestinians to, uh, um, uh, to allow Jews to get back their property that they forced to leave in 1948 without allowing the Palestinian families that live in these houses to get their property from the places that they forced to leave in 1948. Because in fact, the Salha family in Sheikh Jarrah that is under threat for expulsion, originally from Ain Karim in 1948, they were expelled. Other family from Haifa, the other one from Jaffa. So if you want to give the Jewish families back their property, 
please do that also for the Palestinians who forced to leave their property in 1948. Thanks, Omar. Um, we often uh, notice, I mean, one of the features of, of dealing with this issue is that there's quite a large gap between how the issue is viewed in the international realm uh, and international law and how the issue is, is viewed here in Washington. For example, we often hear in, in Congress, uh, many people look at the Palestinian refugee uh, issue and compare it to other refugee populations, um, suggesting that Palestinians are somehow exceptional. They're, they're treated, Palestinian refugees are treated uh, differently. Uh, for example, uh, there is the claim that uh, the fact that Palestinian refugees are able to transfer their refugee status uh, from one generation to the other there is a, the, the belief that this is somehow unique to Palestinian refugees. Um, and as a result, some people in Washington, including uh, people like the former US uh, ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, um, have questioned the right of the vast majority of Palestinian refugees even to call themselves refugees uh, and attacking uh, UNRWA for allegedly perpetuating the refugee issue, presumably uh, because of this ability to pass uh, the, the status from one generation to the next. Um, you wrote about this uh, a few years ago. Um, can you talk about this debate uh, around who is or isn't appropriately deemed to be a, a refugee, how that standard is applied in the case of Palestinian refugees uh, and, and other refugee populations? Uh. Yeah, Khaled, um, this is very important and it's key because there are two issues here, uh, whether Palestinians are different, to what extent they are different, and uh, whether there is a, also a difference in the way they transfer in perpetuity their refugee status. So let me start with a with a big statement, which I will then provide evidence for. Palestinian refugees are as much uh, refugees as other refugees by virtue of international law. This is largely misunderstood. For historical reasons, there is a distinct regime for Palestinian refugees within the international protection framework for refugees. And this is not a lesser regime outside of the law. So the distinctiveness um, is evident in two respects. Palestinian refugees at large, I wouldn't say all, but at large, do not fall under UNHCR's mandate, but rather UNRWA's mandate. And the second distinctiveness is that Palestinian refugees do not fall within the purview of Article 1A of the 1951 Convention, which is the one defining who is a refugee, meaning the person who's forced to flee um, and cannot return to his or her own country out of fear of persecution. No, Palestinian refugees fall, uh, fall under Article 1D of the Convention, in which is an article, is probably the most misunderstood article of the entire international refugee uh, legal framework, uh, because it's commonly and erroneously referred to as excluding Palestinian refugees from the protection of the Convention. This is incorrect. Article 1D is in fact foundational to the status of Palestinian refugees in international law. And uh, let me explain why. Uh, why. It's very simple. In 1949, while the draft of the 1951 convention and the new NHCR statute were being finalized, the General Assembly had already, so first of all, the refugee crisis, the Palestinian refugee crisis had already occurred. 
And the General Assembly had decided how to resolve the overall conflict in Palestine, including the refugee issues by doing two things, establishing a body called UNCCP, the UN Conciliation Commission for Palestine, whose responsibility was to negotiate a solution for the conflict over Palestine between Israel and their neighboring Arab states, including the refugee issue. And second thing, provided a scheme for durable solution for Palestinian refugees. This is the first durable solution scheme ever devised in, in, modern, in modern times and said those who are willing to return and uh, to their homes and live at peace with their Jewish neighbors should do that. But they also provided for the possibility for the refugees not willing to return to resettle elsewhere. This is why I say that if resolution 194 is not just about the right of return, but of course there is the primacy of the the primacy of the right to return. Now, as we all know, peace proved unattainable in the short term. So UNCCP didn't achieve peacemaking. Peace, peace so because the refugees were starving and in distress, other mechanisms were created. And the most lasting one is UNRWA. UNRWA's original function was geared toward material assistance to the refugees, but also, and this is something that people seem to forget, support UNCCP's work towards solution. And this is the origin of the distinctiveness. Now, another thing that you, I would like you to keep in mind is that 70 years ago, um, the Palestinian refugees were not facing the issues that other contemporary refugees were facing. In Europe, we had millions of refugees who had still to be admitted to a safe uh, country. Palestinians had been given de facto asylum in Arab countries, and Palestinian, this is very important, in general, didn't want to be resettled. They wanted to go back to their homeland, and they wanted to preserve their properties and assets that had left behind, which were huge, huge. And this is why I'm saying it is important to read the, the, the historical documents because people tend to think that Israel really found an empty desert and no, I mean, they found everything that Palestinians had left behind from schools, mosques, public houses, roads, orchards, everything was used to, to build the state of Israel. So, but they, they had to be either, I mean, property had to be restituted or Palestinian refugees had to be compensated. So this is the situation that the 1951 convention uh, recognized. There was no reason to create, a, to duplicate um, the system because UN, UNCCP and ANWA were perfect to respond to the specific needs of Palestinian refugees. All the more, another thing that everyone seems to forget, 70 years ago, ad hoc responses to refugee crisis were the norm and not the exception. In fact, the 1951 convention was not the universal instrument that it is today. It was conceived to protect European refugees and Soviet Union refugees. And in fact, refugees from the large partitions like uh, South and North Korea, um, India, Pakistan, Palestine, uh, they were not under the purview of the 1951 convention, nor UNHCR. So this is what I'm saying. The only thing is, the, the other element of distinctiveness is that this system created 70 years ago to give heightened protection to Palestinian refugees has not been able to function to solve the, the, the refugee issue. Let me address the, the second argument. So the, the, the reason of distinctiveness, it's true, but there is a reason why. Um, the, are Palestinian, I mean, does UNRWA perpetuate the status of Palestinian refugees as refugees? No. 
Palestinian refugees are the largest and most protracted refugee situation since World War II. But there are 16 million out of 21 million refugees, uh, not from Palestine, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, and others, who are in protracted situations. The various generations of these refugees, born and raised in exile, are counted, registered, and protected as refugees by UNHCR. So, and this is done until they gain national protection or another durable solution. So, UNHCR and UNRWA do the same thing count, um, record, and, um, and protect uh, refugees. And this is in, not in perpetuity, but it's until a solution is found to their refugeehood. And it's in the, to, to, to respond to the need to protect family unity as international law requires. Thanks, Francesca. And Hany, I want to turn to you. And Francesca ended on UNRWA, and I want to pick up on UNRWA here. Can you talk about what UNRWA does as a practical matter in supporting Palestinian refugees? Um, you know, and how how critical is this role? And I, I, I depending on where they are, I, I I know the answer is different. And can you talk about the role of international and in particular U.S. support for UNRWA, past and present? And if I can add one more thing, following up on on Francesca's comment, you know, for folks um, particularly in Washington who seem to think that if UNRWA um, stopped calling or, or stopped calling a Palestinian refugee a refugee, would those people then stop seeing themselves as refugees? <laughs> That's like sort of the critical question. Would they, would they stop being refugees if UNRWA stopped calling them refugees? Great, yeah, I feel you've given me a lot. Uh, I think Francesca, I think UNRWA gives the right of the, you, get, you can pass your refugee status. You, get, you can pass your refugee status if you are a male. I think UNHCR gives male and female. So even in so many ways, UNRWA is more restrictive of who can get the refugee case, the status. So that's one. And then remember, UNRWA was older than UNHCR. So there's a lot of things. It's the longest unresolved issue in the UN agenda and the UN agenda since, you know, 70 so years. So that's, you know, there's a lot of issues like that. There's also, especially this came to test during the Syria refugee crisis when some refugees went to Cyprus and Turkey, they're Palestine refugees, but ultimately they ended up in Turkey. So UNRWA does not function in Turkey. In that case, they give them, they, they say UNHCR will cover their services. So that's the one case where it feels like only in the service area. So UNRWA right now has five field offices and only within those five field offices, you could be stranded in the U.S. and UNRWA can do anything for it. So you, you fall under UNHCR outside. So I'm going to go ahead and answer some of the questions from Laura. Uh, so let's just talk about things that UNRWA did, right? In 2022, around 540,000 Palestine refugee girls and boys attended 710 UNRWA schools across the region. That's, you know, UNRWA runs the the best education system in the Middle East because they're focused in education, right? If you're in Lebanon, there is no way for you to get that education because the system doesn't allow for you to go to any school but the UNRWA school. That's why a school, UNRWA runs schools from uh, first grade until high school, right? In Gaza and the West Bank, it's only until uh, ninth grade because, you know, you could go into the public school system. Uh, around 2 million Palestine refugees received primary health care service in about 140 health clinics you know that's kids newborn they're getting their vaccine no mothers and all that i don't think anybody's against that 
And Uno was really unique in the sense that they, they get a good deal on those. So if say, if the US government wanted to do these programs through a different mechanism, they wouldn't be able to do it at the cost effective way UNRWA does. And remember that more than 97% of UNRWA staff are refugees themselves. And that, in that sense, UNRWA was unique that it's the only UN agency where the refugees actually do the work that benefit other refugees. In addition to that, you know, UNRWA right now provides a social safety net to around 390 Palestine refugees. Those are, you know, people in different programs through cash assistance. And obviously, say there is a, you know, there is always emergency response. So there's a, there's a lot of issues with the storm, you know, people's homes get flooded and things, you know, UNRWA also gives blankets, mattresses. In addition to that, you know, a lot of even more, you know, like, Palestinian academic, they say UNRWA's greatest gift to the Palestine refugee is education. And, you know, just to talk about how many of those refugees did with their life because they started either got vocational training at UNRWA. I've met people across America who, one of John Hopkins, for example, best eye doctors, went to an UNRWA school in Lebanon. And there is so many of them. There's a kid who just flew to Mars, the helicopter in Mars. He's a Palestinian from Gaza, went to UNRWA school and a big advocate. And uh, one of the UNRWA refugees from Lebanon was in Germany working in the vaccine among the big team. So that's the caliber UNRWA produced. And obviously, Laura, you alluded to this. So particularly in Lebanon, you know, a Palestinian refugee lives inside an UNRWA-run camp and their right is severely restricted, right? So they have, they have not been granted citizenship. In some cases in Jordan, most of the refugees were able to get a, a, a separate kind of citizenship. That's not that's not the case in Lebanon. They're considered foreigners. There is a lot of tension because of that. There is no political rights in Lebanon. There is no social rights. In fact, it gets even crazier where a Palestinian child cannot inherit their dad or their mother because the law says if the Palestinian refugee dies, the government takes whatever they own. So that in fact, two weeks ago, some party in Lebanon overrode the uh, the Minister of Labor in Lebanon said the Palestinian refugees can work now. The, you know, they are no longer restricted. And some political party overrode that and they said no. So essentially the Palestinian refugees have no dignified means of making money in Lebanon. Obviously, we all know about the Gaza and the disaster in Gaza. Just a quick, in 2006, there was 200,000 Palestinian refugees in food assistance in Gaza. You know, in Last year, the number was 1.1 million. That's the, the size of the disaster. And, and that's, you know, there is a lot of uh, socioeconomic conditions in the camps that are generally poor with high population density, cramped living conditions. They try to build something in a camp to live on. You can't, you know, you're not allowed to. Imagine try to do the same thing in an East Jerusalem uh, refugee camp. There's a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of issues. Also, UNRWA covers the sanitation. That's big of the program, collecting the trash. So nobody else is stepping up. And frankly, a lot of people get mad with UNRWA, you know, even among our allies, because they think this is should be the, according to international law, this should be Israel's job. And, you know, we try not to get too much into that, but ultimately, you know, our, nobody's stepping up to do this. And just to answer your question, Laura, so the the U.S. did come through for UNRWA this year, and you know they I think they restored the funding at three hundred forty thousand dollars a million, which is wonderful. But also, look at the Gulf states, for example. They used to give two hundred millions as of four years ago. 
This year, they only pledged 20 million. So that's so people are not stepping up as much as they did. The UK, which is the third largest supporter of UNRWA, they went down from 57 million to 26 million. And you know, people don't don't ignore the impact this has. This is the equivalent of 70,000 uh, boys and girls not going to school because of that funding. And you know, and I, I know that UNRWA does this, and they do. They get a good deal for the education, for example, and they've cut in. During the Trump years, it was the open season for attacks on UNRWA, and everybody just became an UNRWA scholar all of a sudden. But you know, ultimately, look at the number. The budget for UNRWA has not grown in more than 10 years. This is, you know, imagine the refugees are growing, but the budget has not lived up to match that. So there's essentially a mismatch between what's expected from services and what's actually can UNRWA deliver. And now we find ourselves in a you know, only lifeline services. That means that real has real impact. Just a quick example, when UNRWA hires a doctor in their clinic, they can no longer offer them a full-time job, they do contract, and if the doctor is really good, they get another job, and then UNRWA is left, you know, they can't attract good talents to help the, the families. And, you know, so this is, we need more people to step up, and, you know, the human development impact is felt, you know, UNRWA, you know, understand that you know there is hunger and i know that as a palestine refugee myself i know that you know honor was not the solution for the old palestine the all the palestinian problems but it is an emergency impact uh, emergency intervention that produced a great impact and the international community needs to know that and the u.s is correct and i know the agency is grateful for the support but again other partners are not are scaling back which means we're we're cutting more more of those essential services and you know and that's gonna have an impact you know you create a void who's gonna fill that void in Gaza I leave that to your imagination. You're muted. Yes, I realize, uh, Francesca. I wanted to come back to you and pick up on a point that you uh, alluded to. Um, uh, in terms of the, the relationship between the international legal requirements and the political or diplomatic process. Uh, as we know, international law and the diplomatic process don't always align. I think that's uh, certainly true in the case of, of the Middle East peace process. Um, uh, you recently wrote, for example, that uh, neither the Security Council nor the various peace mediators and negotiators have succeeded to advance the issue meaning a political resolution to the issue. Within the narrow perimeter of the direct negotiations um, uh, between Israel and the PLO, the focus has been progressively shifted from uh, return uh, to self-determination. Um, so tell us a little bit about the tension between those two dynamics um, and, and, and about the challenges more broadly to finding a, an acceptable uh, political resolution that also somehow could meet uh, the, the uh, you know, address, you know, Palestinian rights and the, and the rights of refugees in particular. Yeah, you know, Khaled, as you were reading what I wrote, I realized that if I had to rewrite it, I would write something different because the discourse has shifted from, from the, the refugees and the question, the, prem, the premise of uh, return to statehood 
which is, I mean, because of course, it's self-determination is still central, but, uh, but statehood is what has uh, attracted attention as polarized and polarized uh, the focus of everyone. So let me let me start from a very um, very uh, realistic and current uh, reflection. At present, the future of Palestinian refugees appears gloomier than ever because in the last decades we have assisted to the progressive worsening of uh, their Palestinian refugees' living condition in unrest areas of operation. Uh, and also um, to uh, exacerbation of conflictuality in the region, which has deteriorated an already uh, dire humanitarian situation with West Bank and Gaza under pretty violent, uh, violent occupation and the latter under blockade, Syria trapped in an unresolved 11-year uh, conflict and Lebanon in a downward economic and uh, political um, spiral. So. Um, this is this is bad enough for any for any uh, organization to, or a, any sets of state to deal with and amra has been um, has been made more and more vulnerable um, on top of what uh, Hani said, meaning what are the responsibilities for Anwar? I think that they are, um, the international community has unrealistic opportunity, um, uh, sorry, unrealistic expectations toward Anwar. And um, Anwar cannot be held responsible uh, for what is the, the lack of uh, political resolve. What I've seen in recent years is that the effort to deny legitimacy and legal status of Palestinian refugees, which are factually and legally wrong, all these has contributed to distract from the reality that ending the de facto indefinite refugee status of millions of Palestinian refugees requires political solutions in line with international law. The, the failure to find such solutions is the cause of the continuous existence of the Palestinian refugee question and the growing number of refugees. So in the face of this, ANWA stands as a symptom of a, a chronic political deficit, surely not its cause. So uh, ensuring an adequate support to UNRWA remains the minimum bearable, although insufficient, but the minimum bearable response that the international community owes to Palestinian refugees until their question is definitely settled uh, within the meaning of uh, relevant UN General Assembly and Security Council resolutions. And I say that knowing that the refugee situations will not be solved by inertia, will not solve, get solved by itself. There is a, a need for effective diplomacy and what I call a paradigm shift uh, in this situation, where the United Nations take full responsibility of the question of Palestinian refugees as it does with other refugees, um, correcting the asymmetry between Israel and, and Palestine, because clearly the I mean, the, 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 the Palestinian Authority are not in a position to, uh, to negotiate uh, the question of Palestinian refugees because, or again, of the, um, because Israel has the upper, the upper hands and there are no, 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 no brokers that can, can uh, help adjust the situation. But also, we should stop considering ANRWA as, as a tool to set the bill 
of humanitarian and development needs of the refugees. We should move, and this is the second point, beyond the current constraints of politics and focus on the rights that remain unfulfilled, as, it's, as, as it is in the case of other, of other refugees. I know that international law is not a panacea for all problems, but still, it, here it is to be the starting point or the lighthouse to get out of the impasse. This is what I, this is what I think. Thank you. Um, obviously, this is th there are many many pieces of this the law, the pieces that are the law, the pieces that are people's history and narrative. And Henny, I actually want to come back to you. We're starting to run a little short on time, um, and I want you to talk a little bit um, something that, that I've heard you talk about before. You know, first of all, just take on directly. Palestinians and holding tight to their claim to refugee status as an identity issue. And, and what it would mean. Do, do Palestinians want to stay refugees? I mean, is it that they hold on to this as a weapon to use against Israel because they hate Israel and they're anti-Semitic or is it because they want to actually end their status and actually resolve this? That's the first thing. Second thing, um, and, and that's a follow, really a follow on to what we were talking about a moment ago. Second thing, the, the question of securing the welfare of Palestinian refugees, which is at the heart of what UNRWA does, whether you're talking about in the occupied territories or in neighboring Arab states, this is seen as, this is a pressing humanitarian imperative, right? And we talk about when people come to Congress and say, you have to fund it, they're talking about the humanitarian imperative. But going back to that question of resolving the status of Palestine refugees, the resolution will only come via political solution, right? So there is a tension between the pressure to solve the humanitarian or give primacy to the humanitarian crisis and primacy to the solving of the political context. So can you talk about how, how UNRWA balances that and how you think policymakers should balance that? Great, Laura, thank you. And I, I think it's really not UNRWA that's perpetuating the refugee statehood. You know, refugee statehood is uh, perpetuated by the absence of political solution. And frankly, there is no Palestinian, I promise you, that wants to remain a refugee after such a long time. Even the ones in Jordan, that might be a little bit slightly, you know, not a day goes by without seeing a protest in the camps in Lebanon. I, I visited a few years ago, even little girls who are five years old and seven years old tell me what, what's the name of their town, near Yaffa, they came from. So there is that history that you really long to go into a place where they feel welcome. There is a lot of hostility for refugees in different reasons. In Syria, they were made a scapegoat. In fact, you know, my wife is Palestinian from Gaza, but she's not a refugee. And us getting married was, uh, you know, like, oh, you're a refugee. She's not a refugee. Those have an impact. And, you know, that people don't want to be a refugee. And that's why, you know, uh, people people tell me, you know, where Palestinians don't have passports, we have uh, degrees and those degrees open the words for us. And that's why we're so keen in education. But ultimately for us is that no, I have not talked to a Palestinian in Gaza or the West Bank who's very content with their status because, you know, they've made, they've been made worse off. You know, people lost values, they've lost homes, they've lost relatives. Even in that marsh, you know, I, I spoke to a gentleman from Yazur who, who, who was made a refugee, a professor. And he said, as we made the trek to go to the West Bank, uh, some people actually dropped it on the road, and he said we couldn't do anything. And you know, they, he said they they were forced to leave the hunter and gatherer stage because they were left by a hell, and they had to go and grab some grass and stuff and make a meal. And that's you know, people still tell those stories. And you know, ultimately, 
UNRWA is the greatest humanitarian engine for the Palestine, for the Palestine refugees, but it's not going to, you know, it is, it is trying to just give some welfare, but ultimately it doesn't address the big issues. The organization is, is, is pain, painfully neutral because everybody's watching, right? Everybody talks about UNRWA's curriculum and reality is UNRWA has zero curriculums. In Lebanon, we use Lebanese curriculum. In Syria, the Syrian curriculum. In, in Jordan, the Jordanian curriculum. And then they say, oh, you teach this and, and the organization showed, but it doesn't matter. Every year they come back and say this, you're teaching kids this and that. And, and frankly, that's just really baffling because it's just, it, it, they're essentially taking vaccines from babies at this point because the organization is not able to do this. Like in Gaza last summer, one doctor bragged to me. They said, we Palestinians have higher vaccine rate than Germany. He said 99% of the kids are vaccinated and Germany is like 97. I didn't look at the fact, but he was taking the point that they're very strict about taking care of their kids. And, you know, it's not why, you know, nobody wants to be in a place where they need help. You know, and they go to these honorable clinics, they find somebody, a teacher who's moderately, you know, paid, they're happy, and they have a good system that provides. The PA doesn't want to do this. They're the first to tell you, hey, support honorable, because they know the organization is the answer for a lot of those problems. And because it's a UN agency, it's able to get uh, through to some of those places. You know, can you imagine trying to get a container of medication into Gaza if you're not a UN agency? So there is a lot of advantages that that owner will bring to this, but ultimately it's not going to solve. You know, there is there, there is need to be justice for the Palestine refugees. Until then, owner was going to be there to support them, to make sure, you know, they're, they're educated to the best of the capacity of the organization. Now, if they cut the budget of owner, this is a list of that will happen. I'm hearing that they're not renovating the schools and the owner camps. And those, you know, can you imagine just what kind of environment would that be where, you know, schools are deteriorating and teachers are not as invested? In fact, some of the teachers only get paid during the Trump years. They were getting 40 percent of their salary or 30 percent. And you imagine, like, what stress would that cause? It used to be that UNRWA is that reputable organization. That's the, the global community made that commitment to the Palestine refugees. But they're still they're dragging their feet now, and that causes despair, causes uh, frustration, and the anger is boiling over right now, and especially in places like Gaza and and, and Jordan and, and 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 Lebanon and the organization SIFT Fund. There's specific requests the organization asked for last month. I, I I hope that they get funded, and you know we work we work as individuals to support some of those initiatives here at, through Norway USA, but the needs are too great, and only larger states with bigger budgets and even bigger hearts are able to answer this. Thanks, Hani. Um, Omar, I'd, I'd like to come back to you and uh, it looks like you probably will have the last word. Um, uh, Zohrod talks about displacement and possession, a dispossession not only as events that happened in the past, uh, but also that are uh, that are ongoing. And you you mentioned the example, for example, in, in Sheikh Jarrah, um, that many people uh, are familiar with. Um, but you've also described return as, uh, as something that is fundamental to a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is a very different uh, uh, concept of, of conflict resolution than the sort of peace process that we are familiar with. Um, uh, Zohrot has written, for example, that ending the violence uh, 
uh, and I'm quoting, uh, ending the violence now is necessary, but not a sufficient condition. What's needed is courageous cultural and political change, a shift of consciousness towards a transitional justice process. The only viable solution to the conflict is the country's decolonization. We will only have peace uh, once all of the country's inhabitants and, and refugees are able to live in it without the threat of expulsion uh, or denial of return. Um, can you unpack that for us? Uh, you talk about uh, a, a process of transitional justice. Um, what do you mean by that? Um, and what does that look like in the Israeli-Palestinian context in practical terms, especially as it's, it's something that has never existed in, in the current peace process or what we used to call the peace process? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, of course, uh, we, we understand the Nakba as an ongoing event because the, the, the ongoing injustice still there, still ongoing. And uh, uh, the Nakba file will be uh, uh, closed when the uh, uh, steps or the first steps uh, towards justice will, be, will take place. Um, this is one aspect of the meaning of ongoing Nakba. The other meaning that the same practices that Israel had done in 1948, still doing till today and during the whole seven decades against the Palestinian people. In, in, in smaller portions or, or, or in different uh, tools, but the same uh, uh, approach and the same ideology is still standing beyond the practices of the state of Israel and the policy of the state of Israel against Palestinians everywhere, even those they are uh, citizens of the state of, of Israel. For example, Israel built since it was established till today um, about 900 new cities and towns and kibbutzes, all of them for Jews and zero for Palestinian citizens inside Israel. The policy of building for the Jews, a normal situation, best, better conditions and destruction for the Palestinians still, on, still ongoing. The uh, approach of maintaining the demographic situation still there. So all these racists, approach and policy against the Palestinians still ongoing. And because of that, we, uh, um, um, we, we invite people to, to, to understand this uh, um, power relation between Zionism and the state of Israel and the, 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 from one side and the Palestinian people on the other side as um, uh, uh, ongoing colonial settler situation in that maintaining the injustice towards the Palestinian people. Then the solution that we talk about should consider this in the, this understanding of the situation in Palestine and the relationship between Palestinians and, and Israelis. It's not a conflict between two neighbors that fighted uh, on a piece of land. It's a, 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 a colonial process that started much before 1948. 1948 was just the declaration of the state. Uh, uh, and, uh, by the way, in the Zionist literature, you can find this notion of colonialism and, 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 and settling uh, uh, people from far away in Palestine. This is part of the uh, uh, Zionist approach. So the solution should take into consideration these uh, um, uh, elements of the situation in Palestine and suggests not 
only a reconciliation or peace process. By the way, the, that proves the, the, the peace processes failed all of them because they don't really deal with the, with the, with the facts and the real situation and the real uh, relation between uh, Zionism and the Palestinian people. What we suggest is uh, um, uh, instead of what so-called peace process or reconciliation um, in the classical uh, meaning is to, uh, um, to create a process or a path for transitional justice that was experienced and used in different places in the world, in Latin America, in South Africa, and other places in the other countries in, in Africa, that based on the, uh, um, in, on the um, uh, goal to seek justice for the victims and to seek uh, uh, accountability and to, to, to tell the truth or to create maybe truth commissions uh, uh, and a program for reparation and to, uh, um, to reform institutional uh, uh, and democratic uh, in, in regime or, or, or frame uh, for the whole people that should live in this, uh, in, in this country or in this system including one of the basic things for making justice for the Palestinians is to acknowledge and to implement the right to return. The right to return should be the heart of any solution in the, uh, in the future. So we believe that what we do in our small NGO and, 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 and activities is part of non-formal transitional, transitional process, transitional justice. We do uh, take the people to the destroyed Palestinian villages like the one in the background that called Lifta and uh, to show them how the life of the Palestinians were there. Let's acknowledge their life before. Let's acknowledge the injustice and the expulsion and the ethnic cleansing that was done by the state of Israel and before the creation of the state by the Zionist groups in order to think about better future and uh, to include in that better future the equality for all people that want to live in this place. Thank you so much, Omar. And I want to thank everyone. We're going to have to bring this to a close. I think this is a super timely discussion, falling at a time when the peace process, such as it was for many years, has sort of lost all credibility. And we have Israeli governments that are not acting in any way that suggests an interest in actually um, continuing in the two-state framework. Also, obviously, refugees, uh, we're, we're recording this today, March 4th, 2022, refugees um, and the status and rights of civilians who are displaced in conflict is very much on the minds of the world, which I think should make people think about why this one category of refugees has always been thought of as different from all others and what those rights are. Um, so we'll leave it at that. On behalf of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute, I wanna thank our participants, Hani, Omar, and Francesca, and thanks to all who joined this webinar and especially those who submitted questions. Um, there'll also be a recording of this circulated, so if people missed it, I hope they enjoy it after the fact. We hope you enjoyed the session today and we hope to see you again next Friday at the same time for the next session in the teach-in, which will look at another very hot topic. Um, we entitled it, Why All the Fuss Over Palestinian Prisoners and Martyrs? And that session will feature Sahar Francis from Ademir and Shibli Talhami from Brookings um, University of Maryland and one other panelists who will be announced uh, later. So with that, we will end. So thank you very much.